Amen. Well, thank you so much, Pastor Bill. Familia, good morning. What a great opportunity we just heard about with this uh, special giving project. It's an opportunity we want to invite our church family into to actually live out the passage we're studying together this morning, to shine the light of Jesus by partnering with our brothers and sisters in Christ uh, in and around Ukraine. So alongside uh, Pastor Bill's encouragement, alongside Wally's word, I also, as your your pastor, want to uh, uh, encourage you to take a step past watching the news and all the horror that's happening overseas and to participate in God's work globally. To pray and to be part of this special giving project. However the Lord leads you over and above what you normally give to this church family, I want you to pray and I want you to step out in obedience and love for your familia in Christ through this giving project. Amen? Well, for those of you who I've not had the privilege of meeting yet, my name is Eric Solomon. I get to serve as one of the pastors in our church family. Specifically, I get the chance to serve here at TVC as the campus pastor for this congregation. And I want to personally welcome you. If you've not been here before, we are glad that you are here in this gathering of God's people today. Now, I say it like that on purpose because something we want to often remind ourselves of here at TVC is that, that this building is not the church. This, this worship service is not the church. No, it is the, uh, 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 the local church, one of the many expressions of a God's global church that gathers in this building for this worship service. It is the local church that is singing and praying and, and encouraging one another in generosity and sitting under the preaching of God's word together, to be sent out together as the embodiment of God's kingdom everywhere we go. And I start here because this morning we are going to continue our Matthew series and begin this new section from chapters 5 to 7 in the Gospel of Matthew that we've entitled The King's People. You see, the surprise of the Gospel of Matthew, the the surprise of the Bible really, is that God's kingdom is not a kingdom that is confined to national borders. No, God's kingdom is defined by God as wherever his people are. This is why earlier in our series, I tried to orient ourselves around this this view of the kingdom with this particular definition, that that God's kingdom is God's people in God's place under God's rule. It's because of Jesus that anyone can become one of the people of God by faith. His kingdom is not restricted to geographic place, but is everywhere that his people are. And his rule is not in the hands of some merely human king, but in the authoritative and nail-scarred hands of the God-man, Jesus Christ. You see, God's rule is seen everywhere that God's people declare their allegiance and demonstrate, live out their loyalty to Jesus. And so as we step into this section of Matthew, I want to repeat our definition here because I want it to sit in the backdrop of what we, what we call this, the Sermon on the Mount, this famous sermon of Jesus, God's people in God's place under God's rule. Because for three chapters, we're going to be listening to the king describe life in his kingdom, the life of his kingdom citizens, what it actually means to be his people, what it, what it means to, by the power of the Spirit, cultivate his place and live under his rule. So I want you to remember that as we go through this section, not just this morning, but for the next six weeks. The second thing I want you to remember is not just how the kingdom is defined, but the message that precedes the kingdom. This is the the message that Pastor Kyle uh, explained last week out of chapter 4, verse 17 of Matthew, where Jesus says these words, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. You see, repentance is the message of the kingdom. It is what announces the kingdom. 
It, it comes before the blessings that we call Beatitudes that start this Sermon on the Mount. It precedes the images of salt and light that we will examine. And in the coming weeks, repentance is, is the prerequisite to the righteousness that Jesus is driving from the outside in to his people, defining his kingdom citizens. Because kingdom citizens join the kingdom through the heart whose entry point is repentance. Jesus announces the coming of the kingdom with a turning away from other kingdoms and a turning towards God's kingdom. In other words, repentance is the the unexpected U-turn of the gospel because it is not just turning away from the evil we have done, it is also turning towards a completely upside-down, inside-out righteousness where the way up is the way down. To illustrate this, uh, my family lived in Michigan when I, when I was in school. Uh, we learned this um, a new way of driving, if you will. Over there, they call it the Michigan left. I call it complete insanity. Because if you want to turn left, you actually have to go past where you want to turn, make a U-turn, and then go where you need to go. They say it's safer. It drives me nuts. To, to go in a completely new direction... You've got to go past your turn, make a 180-degree U-turn to eventually turn left. And I think in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is pulling a Michigan left. Here's what I mean. From chapter 4 to chapter 5, he talks about repentance, and then he talks about a completely new way of life. But in order to get to this completely new direction, we can't just turn left. We first have to make a U-turn, the U-turn of repentance, before we can walk the new path he is calling us to. If we don't make that U-turn, we run the risk of taking the rest of the Sermon on the Mount in in one of two wrong directions. We either take it in the direction of legalism or in the direction of anti-law. We either, if we don't do this U-turn of repentance, believe that we need to live out what the Sermon on the Mount is describing in order to get in or stay in the kingdom, legalism, or disregard the Sermon on the Mount as just something that shows us how bad we are and how much we need grace And just kind of, we don't need to follow it. It just points us to Jesus and we kind of put it to the side. Anti-law. No, the call of repentance comes before God's command of requirements. But it does not eliminate them. What repentance does for us is remind us that we can only get in and we can only stay in by grace. By the forgiveness of Jesus, by his free gift of salvation. But that grace doesn't stand still. It runs through our whole lives and it changes us from the inside out into a completely different kind of people with new eyes to see and new callings that run counter to the world that surrounds us, even as we continue to live in and love the world that surrounds us. In other words, in the text that we're seeing, looking at, examining this morning, Jesus is trying to get us to see the world differently, to see as he sees, and this is why he starts where he starts with some Upside-down blessings for people who don't look all that blessed, if I'm honest. Now, as I was thinking of a way to illustrate uh, the, the blessings we're about to come across, I, I, I was listening to a preacher who used this, the artwork of Tim Noble and, and Sue Webster to explain it. And it was super helpful to me, so I am going to use that same illustration and bring it to you. Now, if you've seen this before, I want you to keep it a surprise for the people around you and don't ruin my surprise here, Okay. You see, Noble and Wester's art, they try to shock us and grab our attention through a play on perspective. And so here's the first piece I want to show you. It's, it's made up of Coke 
bottles and, and, and beer bottles and cigarette packs and, and a bunch of stuff that shot up with a bunch of uh, 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 airsoft gun, with a bunch of pellets. And at first glance, it looks just like a, a, a pile of trash on a table. Not much to look at. But look at what happens when the light is turned on and we get a different perspective. All of a sudden, a pile of trash is hiding a beautiful sunset on the Manhattan skyline. Our perspective changes, and it makes all the difference in the world for how we value what we are seeing. All right, let me show you another one. This one actually looks even more like a pile of garbage, multiple bags of trash, a lot of McDonald's in there, nothing against Mickey D's, I apologize for those of you who love McDonald's. But now that you know what they're doing, looking at that, can you kind of guess what they're doing, where they're getting at? Take a look. Do you see it? A pile of trash reflects the silhouette of two people laying down, drawing our attention to the people we too easily mistake for garbage or ignore entirely. Pay attention to what Noble and Webster are doing through their art. They are shifting our perspective with light to show us what we do not see otherwise, what we only see when the light shines through it. I think similarly in our passage, Jesus is shining light through what the world so often describes as less than, not good enough, as bad, wrong, signs of weakness. And he's giving us a glimpse into his kingdom. He is offering us a new way of seeing. Right? In, the, in the same way that we have to humble ourselves to go to the eye doctor to get our eyes checked and admit that we need glasses, so humble repentance leads to a kingdom prescription to see as Jesus sees, to see who Jesus sees. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is, if I'm honest, as disturbing as it is comforting. Because you see, it is comforting to those who have finally admitted their need to be comforted, their, their desperate state away from Jesus, who, who see and acknowledge that need and come to Jesus because of it. But it is also disturbing to those who still need to be convinced that they are poor and empty without Jesus. This text turns all of our value systems upside down and declares that the kingdom is not what's easy, but what's true, especially when what's true is also what's difficult. I mean, what could be more difficult than admitting not only that we need help, but that without help, we are desperately lost without any hope, especially when all of our bank accounts and relationships and accomplishments seem to tell us that we are the master of our own destiny, the captain of our own souls. With something this difficult, it's no wonder that the history of the Sermon on the Mount is filled with more Christians that try to redefine Jesus' hard sayings rather than humbly submitting to them. There's a book um, that I was uh, listening about. It's a book written on the Sermon on the Mount, and it's written by a Jewish rabbi. So you have a, an Orthodox Jewish rabbi writing about an, an ancient Jewish rabbi, Jesus, and his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And in his introduction, he makes an interesting provocative statement, so I remind you that these are his words, not mine, but this is what he writes. He says, essentially, the history of Christianity is the history of Christians trying to evade the Sermon on the Mount and avoid living according to its plain meaning. Wow, right? As I was studying this week, that punchy line made me wonder how I myself might be tempted to sidestep this text in my own life. How we might be tempted to avoid this text in our own church family. And, and I think there are at least two ditches that we can fall into that I've kind of already mentioned, but I want to keep talking about it because we, we, we sometimes forget 
that this Sermon on the Mount is a text for disciples who've repented. We try to make it a prerequisite for the kingdom. Or sometimes we forget that grace actually makes demands on our lives and we turn it into a footnote in the kingdom. Just a gospel pointer that reminds us how much we need Jesus. This morning, my goal is that by the end of our time sitting at the feet of Rabbi Jesus, we are going to see the grace that is laced in and out of this text from how people become kingdom citizens to how those kingdom citizens live out their new identity. But in order to do that properly, we need to establish the context of our text because as I've said before, a text without context, it's just asking for trouble. So, Take a look at the first two verses of our text so we can get situated in this sermon and sit down with the crowds before we listen to Jesus. The text says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. So here's a couple key details that I want to build our frame for the next three chapters. And I'm spending extra time here at the beginning because this uh, is the first sermon in a series of six sermons on the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to establish some key things that are happening here at the beginning. The first detail I want to point out is do you see who is in this scene? Jesus is teaching, so obviously he's right in the middle of everything. but, But who else is present? The crowds and the disciples. The previous chapter tells us that Jesus went around calling specific people to follow him as his disciples. It also explains his kingdom ministry to crowds, healing and freeing many from demonic oppression. And so the audience for Jesus' most famous sermon is filled with two groups. People who are following Jesus because of what he has been doing and people who are following Jesus because of his calling on their lives. The crowd is following him because of what he's been doing, which makes total sense, right? The people who fill this crowd are the people that society considers expendable, powerless, unimportant. These are the ones that Jesus is freeing and healing. Why? Because they recognize their need to be healed and freed, and they flock to Jesus. But it is within that crowd that there's this other group, these disciples, People who are not just following him because of what he's been doing, but because he has specifically called them. They have left their nets. They have left everything to follow him. First detail. Second detail I want us to see is that Jesus actually, the text says he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Eric, why are you spending time here? Because it's not an accident what Jesus is doing here. Besides the practical answer that in a time before microphones, it is much easier to speak from an elevated position Mountains are important in the storyline of the scriptures. See, mountains are where important things happen. Abraham obeyed God and prepared his son Isaac to be sacrificed on a mountain only to be stopped by God, continuing the people of God through Isaac. Moses received the famous Ten Commandments on a mountain, came down glowing from this interaction with the Lord. Elijah encounters God on a mountain, hearing the still, small voice. Mountains are where God encounters his people for special moments in his story of redemption. And this moment is no different. Jesus goes up on a mountain, and he sits down with his people. In this culture, sitting down like this is a symbol of authority. You see, rabbis, they read from the scriptures standing up, but they would actually sit down to teach, demonstrating their authority from that posture. Jesus, by his posture and his choice of setting, is communicating his authority and his identity as God the King. You'll have to hold on to that when we go through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, because there's a lot to be said about Jesus' authority. 
The last detail that I want to point out, not just who's present, but who's Jesus teaching? The text explains the sequence of events like this. Jesus saw the crowds, went up on a mountain, sat down, his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Now, of course, in a general sense, Jesus is teaching anybody that's listening, the crowds and the disciples. But I think in a more specific sense, Jesus is actually teaching his disciples while the crowds overhear. This is why I think Matthew chooses this particular sequence of words, because like Jesus likes to do, he is hitting two birds with one stone. He is presenting the kingdom to all, but to the crowds, he's asking a slightly different question than what he's asking the disciples. To the crowds, he's asking the question, which starts with chapter 4, verse 17, will you repent and join the kingdom that I'm describing to live like this? While to the disciples who have already repented, who have already turned away from their sin and to him, he is explaining, listen, this is how we live in this kingdom you are now a part of. Are you living like this? Not to stay in, but because you already are in. In other words, Jesus is both giving an invitation to be part of the kingdom, while at the same time giving a reorientation to live like you're part of the kingdom. This is the Sermon on the Mount we're going to be in for the next six weeks. And this morning, we're going to spend time in Jesus' introduction, which has two parts in it. The Beatitudes and this dual illustration of salt and light. So here are the two handholds I want to give us as we look at these two parts to understand what Jesus is doing in each of them. And they, here are the, the two phrases I want to keep in your mind. Kingdom perspective and kingdom purpose. You see, Jesus, like I already said, starts in a very unusual place. But it's not unusual because he's pronouncing blessings. This is actually a pretty normal thing to do at teachers. Uh, even Psalm 1 begins like this, blessed is... Does anyone know? I'm just going to read it. It's all right. I want to make sure I get it right. Psalm 1. Too many pages. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Blessed is the one who does this. Blessed are those who. Jesus is not doing something unusual by pronouncing blessings. What he is doing that is unusual is who he's pronouncing blessings on. The most unlikely of people. Jesus is here writing a new prescription. He is explaining a kingdom perspective. He is shining a light through the world that shows us what God sees when he looks at the world. He's offering us kingdom lenses. And then after he's given us a new perspective, he lays out a new purpose. A kingdom purpose with his dual illustration of salt and light. What is the purpose, the calling, the mission of kingdom citizens who have a kingdom perspective? So let's start with that kingdom perspective where Jesus starts with these upside down blessings. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Every kingdom has the, a picture of the good life. right? The, the Roman Empire had Pax Romana, the Roman peace. The United States of America has life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The kingdom of God has blessed are the poor in spirit. Where the world sees weakness, God declares blessing. You see, Jesus flips the world's definition of the good life with his opening line. Why are the poor in spirit blessed? Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But, but why? Because they listen to the announcement of the kingdom of heaven and they've repented. 
See, it is only the poor in spirit who receive the kingdom because only the poor in spirit realize that they need to repent. That they more easily see their need for God than those who are obscured, obstructed, lost in the fog of their self-sufficiency. Blessed are those who see in their Savior their need for a Savior. The kingdom of heaven is theirs. Not someday, but today. I isolate this beatitude here at the beginning because Jesus interweaves grace in his sermon from the start. Jesus very strategically begins where we would not. The kingdoms of this world, the kingdoms Jesus himself was tempted with at the beginning of chapter 4, they do not start with poverty. They do not start with powerlessness that comes from having little to nothing, being desperate for help. They start with wealth and influence and palaces and power, but the kingdom of God starts with weakness and desperation and the recognition that we are powerless to change our circumstances, physically and spiritually. This is who God calls blessed because this is who God decides to bless, who God can bless because they're actually coming to him for blessing. And this is something that actually holds for all of Jesus' ministry. Later in Matthew verse nine or chapter 9, we read of this interaction that Jesus has with, with the religiously powerful. And, and listen to what he says here. The, the Pharisees, they saw what he's doing. They asked his disciples, listen, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus, why are you with sinners? Why are you spending so much time with them? Because they need me, and they know they need me. They realize they need Jesus, and so they keep coming to him. As Jesus teaches on this mountain and opens with these words, the the sinners in this crowd, they lean a little closer. Because in the kingdom of God is the poor in spirit who not only are called blessed, but can actually enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because of the one who's speaking to them. But now I'm jumping ahead of myself. In the rest of this introduction to his sermon, Jesus repeats the word for blessing nine times. Over and over again, he declares blessing. But he declares blessing, the the favor of God, the, the approval of God, on those who would be least likely to receive the approval of the world. Why? Because the kingdom of God is upside down, inside out, the mirror image of the world. You just have to consider this. uh, When you look in a mirror, mirror is actually flipping what you see. It's why side mirrors have a warning that objects are closer than they appear. Why emergency vehicles sometimes have the words spelled backwards on their hoods. Why why when we raise our, our left hand, our reflection is technically raising its right hand. It's a little trippy, but the kingdom of God is something like that. Because when the kingdom of God says bad, the world says good. When the kingdom of God says good, the world says bad. In fact, it's probably more accurate to say that the world is the mirror image of the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom is what's really real. And the world is what has twisted reality and distorted God's goodness. Blessed are the poor in spirit because they know they need a savior. The rest of the Sermon on the Mount does not make sense unless we feel the weight of Jesus' opening words. The kingdom is not gained by doing more, but by realizing that no matter how much you do, you will never make enough, you will never do enough to gain entrance. It is in this realization that the door is unlocked because it is the first step to receiving the gift of the gospel of Jesus. Have you ever tried to pay someone for a gift that they're giving you? I mean, not just because you're being polite and you just kind of want to do the whole rigmarole, but like actually try to pay. The moment you try to pay for a gift is when you change that gift into a transaction. 
But the kingdom is not a transaction. It is a humbling realization that without God, we are lost, and he is giving us a gift. And this gift, the kingdom is not up but down, and this is the first staircase on the way down. Blessed are the poor in spirit. But the way down is also the logic of the next three blessings Jesus gives. Look at what he declares as blessed. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Following the logic of the first blessing, being pure in heart, I think these three characteristics go from realizing our, our desperation to looking up and looking out and seeing the desperation of the world around us. I'll explain that by actually starting with the last one that I listed there, because I think it'll clarify the first two for us. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those whose desperation for God has become a desperation to live the life he has for us. One pastor explains that righteousness simply means something like right relationship, as as what makes and maintains right relationship at its core. At the end of the day, I, th- I think this is what we all mean by righteousness, even if we don't really realize it, right? Our, our laws are not meant to be obeyed in some kind of abstract sense, but in relationship with others. We're not supposed to speed because there's something inherently wrong with speeding. We don't speed because we are, 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 there's something dangerous to the other drivers on the road. God's law about murder is not some abstract concept of ethics. It is about violating relationship with another human being and rebelling against the God who made life. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are those who feel a deep need that must be met and can only be met in right relationship with others and in right relationship with God. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of righteousness, of relationships being made right, of God bringing humanity back into right relationship with him and with each other. And those who belong to this kingdom, they hunger and thirst for this kind of righteousness. Their appetite has changed Their desire for unrighteousness has been replaced by a deep longing for righteousness. So here's a question for us to consider this morning. Do we find that our appetite for sin is diminishing and our appetite for righteousness is increasing? That we want God's righteousness more than we want our sin. I start here because I think this theme of righteousness clarifies the mourning and meekness of verses 4 and 5. I think the theme of righteousness goes throughout this whole Gospel of Matthew in a lot of different ways. But in specific here in the Beatitudes, I don't think that when Jesus is talking about mourning, that he's just talking about mourning in general. When he's talking about meekness, he's not just talking about being a gentle person in general. The Bible speaks about that in other places, don't get me wrong. But here I think Jesus is talking about a specific kind of mourning and a specific kind of meekness. I think Jesus is picking up on this biblical theme of mourning over unrighteousness, over things not being right in the world, not being right in our neighborhood or our city, of relationships broken between each other and between humanity and God. God's people, kingdom people, are desperate for righteousness, and they're so desperate that they hunger and they thirst for it, but they're also so desperate that when they see its absence, their their eyes fill with tears and their hearts break. Do our hearts break what breaks the heart of God? Do you mourn over unrighteousness? That is the kingdom response of those who see the world from a kingdom perspective. It's not that they would abandon the world, but that they would mourn over it. It is not apathy, but but sadness over what is happening. 
Kingdom citizens are not just hungry and thirsty for righteousness to be done. They, they, they weep when unrighteousness rears its ugly head in their own hearts, in the hearts of those that live next door to us, those that sit in oval offices and glittering palaces, in courtrooms and classrooms, on the corner and in the corner office, those who are poor in spirit, they, they weep over unrighteousness. They see that things are not right and they hunger and they thirst for it to be made right again. But they also hunger and thirst for themselves to be made right, to be filled with righteousness. And I think that's something that requires meekness. We don't use that word all that often. I don't know when the last time is that you talk, called someone meek. Someone might try to punch you because they think it's an insult. But what, when Jesus communicates this word, it has this sense of, of, of gentleness, of lowliness, of kindness. But, but in keeping with this theme of righteousness that I think courses through these blessings, it is not just about being gentle in general, but a gentleness that comes from a deep self-awareness. You see, those who mourn over unrighteousness in the world are not filled with pride because they realize that the unrighteousness doesn't stop out there, but has also gripped their hearts. They are poor in spirit, and they know why. Because sin has infected them like it has infected the world. The world has gone bad, and so have I, which is why I am so hungry and so thirsty. Blessed is the one who sees themselves as God sees them, poor in spirit, meek, and sees the world as God sees it, empty of righteousness and sad rebellion against its maker. Blessed are they. Why? Because they will be comforted. They will inherit the earth, and they will be filled. Their God and King will not leave them to figure things out on their own. He will comfort them. He will give them the earth he created, restored, repaired, and all of its beauty as their inheritance. He will fill their longing for things to be made right again. I want you to notice something here. In these first, or the, these uh, Blessings 2 through 4. I want you to notice the shift that Jesus makes from the first one to the second one and holds for a while, from present to future. You see, in the first blessing, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Right here, right now, it belongs to them. But now he shifts and he says, Not theirs is, but they will be. Not now, but later. This is the beauty and the difficulty of the kingdom, because it is now and it is also not yet. It is ours and it is also yet to be given. This is why Hebrews calls him the God of hope. Why we talk so much about faith. Because kingdom citizens have a perspective that is both present and future. And the future is what impacts our present no matter what's going on around us. The light has shone and is shining, but will someday overtake the darkness completely. And that is our hope. But it is not yet. And yet we also experience the kingdom here and now affecting what we do here and now. And this is why I think Jesus gives the next three blessings. These next three aspects of our kingdom perspective, they shift to action. Look at verses 7 through 9. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the ones who show mercy, whose hearts are pure, and who make peace. Jesus shifts from reacting to unrighteousness in, in acknowledgement and lament and desperation to now doing something about it. The kingdom of God is not just about knowing things have gone wrong, but being part of making them right. Why? Because we have been made right. When Jesus talks about mercy, he focuses this mourning over unrighteousness from the world and focuses us in on our neighbor. The world may be broken, but Jesus repairs it one neighbor at a time. And those who have experienced mercy are first in line to show mercy to others. 
because we know who we are and we know what he has done to save us. Pride gives way to mercy because we have been shown mercy. And mercy is undivided in its pursuit. In other words, pure of heart. The perspective of a kingdom citizen is given by a merciful king, but it is also reciprocated with this singular devotion to that king. So when Jesus talks about purity of heart, he's describing a posture of heart that doesn't care so much about being seen by others, but by seeing God, walking with and like God. Because this is so often the temptation of the merciful, isn't it? To be seen by others and praised for our good works, which is why purity of heart is so important. Because our acts of mercy, of compassion, of love, and service for others are not to be done for our good name, but to glorify Him. Because we are reflecting who He is in what we do. This is why those who show mercy and devotion to God are also those who make peace. The Bible does not just call Him the God of hope, but calls Him our peace. He is the embodiment of peace. And so those who also embody peace are the easiest ones to spot as His children. Look at how Jesus explains the reward of those who reflect the God who saved them. The merciful will be shown mercy, the pure in heart will see God, and the peacemakers will be called children of God. Those who show mercy are those who will receive it. Why? Not because they've earned it, but because by their life they show how much they themselves need it. They show their deep understanding of what mercy is and who it is for. It is for those who are poor in spirit. Those who are pure in heart, they will see God because their single-hearted devotion to God will lead to to them actually finding and seeing God. Those who make peace, they're called children of God because children follow in the footsteps of their father. They cannot help but be like their father. And Father God makes peace where there is no peace. I once went up uh, to pick up my daughter at her preschool classroom, and, and the person who was there was a teacher that I hadn't met yet, that didn't, didn't know my face. And immediately, she said, you must be here for Lucia. Wow, you like, look just like her. After she verified my identity and didn't just hand me my child, she, she, she could tell who my daughter was because of the similarities she saw. Familia, do people see the similarity of God in our lives? Do they see the peace and mercy of God with this holy purity of motives and intention? Do they see us mourning and desperate for righteousness? Do they see in our lives a deep need for things to be right, as well as a consistent participation in what is right and what makes right? Kingdom citizens have a kingdom perspective and through repentance have traded in the value system of the world for God's values, and it's supposed to show But Jesus' sermon is only getting started because Jesus is not about to just sugarcoat things, talking about blessing all the time. He's also doing something upside down here because living within this kingdom perspective is not just going to be pie in the sky, by and by, everything's good. It's actually going to result in rejection. Jesus' blessings end where you wouldn't expect. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he makes a dramatic turn like only Jesus can do. From those to you, blessed are those, now blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
You see, blessing follows kingdom citizens, but it is true blessing, which in this upside-down kingdom also means that persecution follows kingdom citizens. Why? Because when we live according to a kingdom perspective, according to the counterculture of the kingdom, the world will reject us. The world will reject the kingdom not because it is not good, but because the world has a hard time seeing it as good. They are blinded by sin just like we were blinded by sin. Where kingdom citizens mourn over and push back against the unrighteousness of the world, the world rejoices in and decides for themselves what is righteous. I've said it before here, but it bears repeating. The question in our day and age is not whether Christianity is true. The question is now whether Christianity is good. The God of Christianity is not seen as good, but oppressive, as harmful, as toxic, as dangerous. And you might go, yeah, we need to like change that and make, make, make people see good for good. But let me ask you an even more piercing question that has been sort of haunting me all week, and now I'm handing to you to bother you. Are they asking whether Christianity is good because of Jesus or because of us? Look at the text. Jesus pronounces a blessing on those who are persecuted because of righteousness, but he clarifies. The persecuted are not persecuted just because of righteousness, but because of him. This blessing is not just for those who are jerks about righteousness, those who are mean and harsh and self-righteous and condemning, but those who are persecuted because of of Jesus, because of, of, of what he says. Too often we get this all mixed up and try to claim the name of Jesus not on what he says, but on what we say. Christians throughout history have made the world doubt God's goodness not because of him, but because of what we have done in his name. This is why Jesus blesses the merciful and the peacemakers, the meek and the desperate for righteousness, the pure in heart, because they rightly display God to the world. And it is for that that they are persecuted. Not because the world is just annoyed with their personality, but because the world hates God. Jesus is talking about persecution that naturally flows out of the world's resistance to Jesus, to who Jesus says we are, to what Jesus requires of us. Unfortunately, these days, the world more often rejects Christianity not because of what Jesus has said, but because of how we have misspoken. This morning, Familia, if you want to live the life of the kingdom with the perspective of the kingdom, we need to embrace all of what Jesus says here. We need to speak rightly about Jesus. We need to embrace difference, but we need to embrace the right kind of difference. The difference that extends itself in compassion to those who are hurting. The difference that fills with tears at the brokenness of the world. The violence that fills our news cycles with horrific scenes in classrooms and in other countries. The difference that is not afraid to call unrighteous what God calls unrighteous, but does so out of gospel compassion, not of self-righteous legalism. Because it is then that the glory of the gospel shines brightly. And even if the world might reject it at first, it is what draws them in like it drew us in. One of my favorite preachers, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, explains it like this. He says, the glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. And it is then that the world is made to listen to her message, though it may hate it at first. The kingdom of God The church that displays this kingdom must be different, but it must be different as defined by the king, marked by truth and compassion. 
It's why Jesus, after shifting from the pronoun those to you, also shifts from perspective to purpose. Because kingdom perspective always establishes kingdom purpose. Look at verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You see, not only has Jesus shifted the pronouns, he's also shifted the tenses, right? He's no longer talking about the future, he's talking about the present. You are. The kingdom of heaven is not just a future, but a present reality. It's something we do here and now. We don't avoid people just waiting for the end. Can't just wait till God gives us the inheritance of the earth. God has a purpose for his kingdom people. Escapism is not the answer to unrighteousness. Engagement is. Because we're following in the footsteps of Jesus who came to us. Citizens of the kingdom are the salt of the earth. One scholar explains, it's not that they, that they are becoming. It's not that they will one day be. It's not that they are working at becoming. It is that they already are. To escape the world or hide from the world is to be something we are not. You are the salt of the earth. So be that. Preachers have taken this this image, Jesus' image of salt, all over the place to explain how he is using it here. But but I, I think, to be honest, Jesus is pretty clear here about what he's focusing on. Salt that doesn't taste like salt is useless. Because I'm expecting salt and doing all its things. Salt that doesn't taste like salt is losing its purpose. Disciples who don't live like disciples have given up their purpose. Their purpose is not about self-salvation. It is about the salvation of the world. Those who have been shown mercy, they show mercy. Those who have peace with God, they make peace with others. Those who see the brokenness of the world and in their hearts, they mourn, they're meek, they're hungry and thirsty for everything to be made right again. Jesus is not giving us a to-do list here. He is giving us a profile. This is who disciples are. This is what you look like. Not perfect, but this, these are the values of the kingdom. This is what we value. This is what we are, 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 are exemplifying in our lives. Those who look like this are those who live in the kingdom, living out the kingdom everywhere they go. Don't work hard at being salt. Be the salt you already are, that by the Spirit of God you are. But I want you to keep going because I actually think the image of salt and the image of light go together. I think this is why Jesus has a shorter part on salt and a longer part on the light of the world because he's using two images and then he hits at the end. So here's the text. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand. It gives light to everyone in the house. That's the same size as the salt piece. And then he hits in the same way. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You already are salt. You already are light. So be that. How ridiculous it is for salt to not taste salty. How ridiculous it is for a lamp to be lit and then somehow hidden. No, be who disciples are meant to be. Point people to God by the way you live your life. Let your light shine before others so that they see your good works, what you say and what you do, and see not your glory, but his glory. Do you remember what what he said earlier? Peacemakers, their reward is that they'll be called children of God. Notice here in this final verse in our text that Jesus calls God your Father in heaven. 
Too often we give the credit to the Lord's Prayer as like an amazing when it starts talking about. This is the first time in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus does this. It says, your Father in heaven. This would have landed like a grenade in the middle of this crowd. Exploding all of their uh, uh, expectations of what Jesus is doing, who he says he is, who God is. Your Father in heaven. He is not just our king, he is our father. And everything we do, all of what we are, everything we say, is meant to be a reflection of and a pointer to him. Lucia doesn't have to like try to look like me. Liliana doesn't have to try to like sound like me. They, they just do that, as crazy as it is. We are meant to be a reflection and pointer of the God who saved us and adopted us into his family. He has made us his. Our purpose as kingdom citizens is to live out our identity as his children. To introduce others to him by the way we live and what we say. But Jesus is not playing games here and just say like, oh, you got this. Your life has to be different. When we don't do this, we're actually working against our identity. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his famous book, The Cost of Discipleship, says it even more directly. He says, flight into the invisible is a denial of the call. A community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. Familia, we are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. And the blessings of the kingdom are meant to be communicated, to be demonstrated. The more we keep it to ourselves, it's the more we distort ourselves. The more we become who we are not. But the only reason we are who Jesus says we are is because Jesus is who he says he is. In another one of the Gospels, John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says this, I am the light of the world. Did Jesus, like, like did they, the Gospel writers mix this up? Jesus always meant to say, I am, and then he's saying, you are. No, we are the light of the world because Jesus is the light of the world. Our kingdom purpose is not a test to prove our worth, our purpose as salt and light is to be who he, says, who, he, who says we are, who he saved us to be. These blessings are not our ticket in. Jesus is. You see, hundreds of years before Jesus came, there's a prophet who predicted a Messiah that would embody this kingdom. Isaiah says this, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord talking about this Messiah is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news, gospel, to who? To the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. And I could keep going, but I didn't think it would all fit on this slide. Does that sound familiar? The poor and those whose hearts are broken who mourn, those who live in darkness, Jesus embodies the blessings he uses to define the kingdom for these, this crowd, his disciples. He is the one who made himself poor in spirit and dependent on the Father when he came to this earth. He is the one who mourns deeply the unrighteousness of this world and it moves him to do something about it. He is Jesus, meek and mild, gentle and lowly, exerting his strength not for himself but for others. Jesus was desperate and hungry and thirsty for righteousness and he is the one that actually came, that righteousness might fill the earth. Everywhere he went, Jesus shows mercy and compassion. Blind men crying out, Son of David, have mercy on us. It is his single-minded devotion, his, his purity of heart that led him all the way to a cross. It is he who Ephesians says is our peace. It is he who ultimately makes peace for us between us and God and us and each other who tears down the, the dividing wall of hostility, Ephesians 2 says. 
But merely before God commands, he frees. It is the storyline of Scripture. The Exodus always comes before the Ten Commandments. The cross always comes before his commands. Apart from Jesus, you and I cannot do what is required in this Sermon on the Mount, which is why the poor in the Spirit are blessed, because they not only know it, they are desperate for him. The Sermon on the Mount ends with this interesting parable where Jesus explains something that, that I'll talk about more later when we get there, but, but I want to read here because I want to remind you when we talk about these blessings and being salt and light, this is part of what Jesus is talking about. He says this parable, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it didn't fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. Too often we read this and we think, okay, i got to do everything Jesus said in here so that I'm on the rock. And we forget that Jesus is the rock. Are you desperate for him? Build your house on the rock, not the rock of your own good deeds, but on the only one who is truly good, Jesus alone. He is the one who makes demands on our lives, yes, our whole lives, but not before he frees us. Not before he saves our lives. Grace always comes before obedience. Never instead of, but always before. The old hymn says it like this, On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. This is our hope. Christ the solid rock. Not our own good deeds, but his ultimate deed of salvation. Recognizing our desperate need for him, his mercy, his peace, and letting that change everything about us our perspective, our purpose, that we might be the salt of the earth, the light of the world, that we might be bright, shining billboards that point people to Jesus. Will you pray with me that Jesus might continue to make us into that shining city on a hill? Gracious Jesus, your Sermon on the Mount paints a picture of a kingdom we so desperately want. And at the same time, we find that our hearts resist Would you continue to humble us in loving compassion and remind us of how desperate we are apart from you? Would you you continue to draw us in with your uncomfortable but beautiful and righteous kingdom? Would you in us and through us bring your kingdom to bear that we might love others like you have loved us? That we might show mercy and make peace like you have shown us mercy and made made peace with us. We need you, Lord. We know that the only reason we live out our kingdom identity is because you have given us your spirit, and so we pray that you would not only remind us, but empower us, teach us to depend on your spirit. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We declare it, Lord, and we pray that you would help us to live into it this week. Amen and amen.